Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Today, Carol Bruneau, author of Brighten the Corner Where You Are. You can spot Ahmad Lewis painting A Country Mile Away. A spring explosion of tulips and apple blossoms frames a team of burly oxen staring straight at you. A bright red horse-drawn sleigh heads down a snow-packed road towards a rural church. There are no shadows in these distinctive scenes, but there were many shadows in Maud's life. Her joints were so gnarled with rheumatoid arthritis that it took both hands to steady her paintbrush. She and her husband had a relationship fraught with the effects of his drinking and general meanness. Carol Bruneau has imagined this intriguing woman's experiences and given her a voice in Brighten the Corner Where You Are, a novel inspired by the life of Maud Lewis. Carol Bruneau, welcome to Book Me. Oh, thank you for having me, Costas. You could have written this with some distance, but you chose to speak in the first person as Maud herself. What gave, yes. you the, what gave you the confidence to do that? Well, for me, it was the only way to tackle her story, and it's a little bit arrogant, I admit. But initially, <laughs> I thought her, her story has been told by so many other people kind of speaking for her, but in a third person, you know, more of a distant way, as you suggested. But I thought this woman was bossed around all her life. Wouldn't it be interesting to try to get inside her head and imagine what she thought about things and imagine a person is a little more subversive than maybe the meek and mild law that we're led to believe in or, you know, that I guess is more of a popular conception of her. So I was, I was really interested in trying to find a voice for her and what would that voice be? Um, another aspect of her life and her story is the fact that she came from two worlds, very distinct worlds. Most people know about her life in Marshalltown, which is rural and isolated and all the deprivations of that life. But her upbringing in Yarmouth was at a time when that town was a booming, thriving cultural place, you know, with a lot of things happening. She would have been surrounded by a lot of interesting things. Uh, Yarmouth, of course, being a seaport, had all kinds of industry. It had lots of cultural events happening. Maud's brother managed the theater there, so she would have gone to movies all the time with her mom. So I imagine this very vibrant kind of life, even if she was quiet, even if she did spend a lot of time keeping to herself. But I imagined these two very distinct worlds, and I wanted her to have the vocabulary that would complement both of these worlds. We all know that our childhoods are so formative and really influence how we see the world and how we express ourselves and all of that. So to me, the, her years in Yarmouth would have been formative, and that's a big part of finding her voice for me. And aside from speaking in her voice, you free Maud of, of all her earthly limitations and struggles, and she had many, by giving her literally a bird's-eye view of the people in her life, past and present from her parents back in, in Yarmouth, uh, to her husband Everett, to the people attending her burial. And you let her comment on all of it. Do you remember when you, when you struck on that device? Yes, and I think it was pretty early on because, again, to try to give her story a, some sort of a fresh spin. And for me, the, probably the main things that have happened 
since her death to make her famous happened after 1970. For instance, her house being restored and installed in the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia, a big thing. So I thought, well, again, to, to really tell her story in its fullness, I need her to be omniscient in that way so that she can see from the grave, she can see all of these doings that are happening below her. You know, I didn't want to just recreate her biography and the aspects of her biography that everybody knows about. So this gave me license. It it made it fun to write. If not for that device, it, it would not have been fun to write. I would have felt more like I was just going through the motions, you know, and uh, kind of just simply recapturing or recreating what other people have already done. And she clearly identified on some level with birds. I mean, she has that wonderful crow, Matilda, that she keeps an eye on all the time. Yes. Well, I think, Maude, I imagine her as a person who probably responded more to nature and creatures in nature than she did to humans. You know, witnessing her paintings, the things that obviously gave her joy, birds, flowers, bees, butterflies. All those cats. And cats, of course, (laughs) yes. And I can relate to that. To all of those things, actually. But I just imagined her having a special relationship with her surroundings, and especially in her isolation, and in, in a marriage that wasn't particularly, I can't imagine, being very happy. To me, it would be natural that she would connect with the crows that would be around her yard and so on, and, and in particular, this Matilda. When Maud was in her 20s in Yarmouth, uh, a young man makes her pregnant and abandons her, and her mother says, However will we live this down? I never dreamed a girl of mine would turn bad. And you have Maud thinking to herself, well, crippled and bad, leastways I'm not poor. That would have made three strikes against me. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you think that, that feistiness and optimism came from? That's a really good question. Um, I think the fact that she was such a creative spirit and she could lose herself in her painting I don't think she would consider it feistiness, but I think it was that ability to sort of withdraw from the really troubling things and her way of dealing with the stigmas that would have surrounded her, especially at that time. So just an inner quirkiness or that ability to really withdraw from the world and be creative, I think that's what saved her. So I don't know if I would call that resiliency in the standard way we think of resiliency, because in many ways it was a function of extreme denial. You know, I right. think, but uh, yeah, I guess it just takes different forms and different people. After her parents died, Maud went to live with a, a very strict religious maiden aunt. That didn't work out. Tell us how she and Everett Lewis became a couple and how her life changed then. Okay. I based, you know, my story as much as I could on research, and I think it's probably true that Maud would have seen Ev Everett, you know, when she was in Digby living with her aunt, because he was a fish peddler, as most people know, and the infamous story about him posting the ad at the store for looking for a housekeeper, which is just absurd. But anyway, I I kind of imagined that. I believed all of that. But I kind of took it a step further to try to ask myself, how desperate was she that she would have walked into his life the way she is supposed to have? So the proximity of his little house to the county home and the Marshalltown Alms House, which it is properly called, that in itself was telling. In the story, I do imagine her kind of being desperate and she's walking towards the almshouse, and she has his ad in her hand, and she thinks, 
no, I'm not doing that. But then after seeing the almshouse, she thinks, no way, I just can't do that. And so his house is next door, so she drops in, and that's how it starts. And it's hard for us to imagine the kind of grinding poverty they lived in and that he had grown up in just in the last century. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there was an almshouse there. Well, and every county had a county home and until fairly recently, and some of these buildings are still standing, and, you know, there's the remnants of them that, you know, poor farms, they were called. And before there were more sophisticated social services, if a person had nothing, this was their only, it not wasn't even an option, they were just put there. It was the last resort. Exactly. So there weren't a lot of services for people who were, suffered, you know, from disabilities, um, from chronic poverty, and so on. Actually, the poverty that Maud and Everett, that was normal for them in the 1960s, wasn't really that abnormal in rural Nova Scotia. I mean, there's still parts of the province that are isolated, that people don't have very much at all. It's just that their story is famous. Their poverty has become famous, but it's perhaps not as unusual or was not as unusual then as we like to think that it was. Well, aside from imagining Maud, you did have to imagine her husband, Everett. And yes. at one point, you have Maud say, Ev was the loneliest person I knew. By the time he and Maud got together, what really had shaped the man that Everett was? Well, he grew up in the poor farm. His parents, I believe, were both residents of it, and his siblings. I'm not sure how many children the Lewises had, but a grim life just from the outset, you know, and deprivation and working, doing farm labor and so on as a very young child. No education, no opportunities. You can't blame a person for that, you know, and I, and obviously those things shaped him. Initially, I began thinking, oh, you know, yes, believing that he was pretty one-sided and a difficult person and nasty and all of that. But underneath that, I realized, well, there's, there was a child who was lived a horrible life and probably suffered an awful lot of misery that no child should ever have to deal with. So those things made me more sympathetic towards him. And also, a friend of mine whose parents were from that area of Nova Scotia, they would take him to visit the Lewises when he was a kid, and he vividly remembers Everett as being very kind and having a very kind twinkle in his eye, which is the way my friend phrases it. And and that I always kept in mind, even when Everett was being horrible. I tried to keep in mind that underneath all of that horrible behavior and nastiness, there was a human being. There was somebody who probably started out being very vulnerable and fine, you know, a decent person underneath it, and it's just the circumstances that shaped him. And you frequently have Maud looking for that twinkle in his eye and sometimes seeing it and sometimes not. But but mm-hmm. you also have people from the outside of that shack who were reading the signs of what they saw and what they heard. Uh, there was the busy buddy, Ms. Tuig, oh. and, the, yeah. and the young police officer, Colpitz. And they were highly suspicious of yes. how Everett was treating Maud. They suspected he was treating her badly. But at the least suggestion of this, Maud defends her husband fiercely every time. Yes. Well, um, I think she was kind of in a hostage position. No, not really. That's extreme. But I believe that the marriage was one of convenience, that it worked for both of them. And not, that's never to suggest that it was happy. But the fact was that she depended on Everett for 
a roof over her head for to, for the food she ate. She had no other options. And so, of course, she would be really careful about not wanting to um, rock the boat. And I think, you know, in such an abusive situation, she kind of had to, again, that function of denial that, oh, he's not really that bad, or always looking for something to, some reason to excuse him or forgive him, kind of because she had to, maybe rationalizing the situation, maybe justifying it to herself. I don't know. Well, you know, well, I'm no psychologist, but it, but it seems Maude and Everett were what you'd call codependent, because codependent. No, matter, no matter what needs one of them wasn't meeting for the other, neither could really survive without the other. Exactly, yes. I really believe that. And I think that, you know, there are people in old interviews that are online, for instance, um, the warden's wife next door at the poor farm remembers them as being happy and in love and all of this, which I think, mm, I don't believe that, (laughs) you know. But again, I think, yes, as you suggest, codependent. It worked for both of them for whatever reason. Certainly not what I would choose, not what many people would choose, but given to people that didn't have a lot of other options or any other options, it was probably better than being each of them being alone on their own. And certainly, I mean, I think with Everett, he came to really exploit Maud's talent and exploit her abilities to bring in some money. You know, So that that's colors the story as well. And it's another aspect that makes him less attractive as mm. a person. Even, even capturing all of this, I did try to present what I could see as the evidence of what made each character tick. And allowing the reader to sort of form their own opinion, is, is Everett forgivable? <laughs> you know, um, right. why would Maude forgive him? Of course, these are things we can never know. We can always just speculate. Very early in the book, Maud says, things buried and unearthed are the undoing of us all. And it turns out that she means this both literally and figuratively in this story. How important is that in crafting the, the characters in this novel and, and in your other works? Well, uh, that's a really interesting question. Difficult question, actually, because, well, automatically it's the, the sense of suspense in a literary way, you know, as, as a device. Yes kind of cue the reader that, oh, there are secrets here. But I think Maud's story especially is one of buried secrets and things that we will never know, especially pertaining to her daughter that she had no relationship with and so on. In any life, you can bury secrets for so long, but they always come bubbling up to the surface. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what's happened. And again, in the case of the Lewises, there's lots of anecdotal evidence from, from people I spoke to that Everett would bury money in jars, like out in the backyard. Right. And so, and so literally burying things. And given the stigma surrounding, especially having a child at a wedlock, as Maud did when she was in her 20s. That would be a big secret that you would never want let out of the bag in those days. Now, thank goodness, we don't have so many stigmas surrounding those sorts of things and, and ideas about how women should be and so on. But for Maud, you know, and in her era, that would have been such a transgressive thing. So obviously that is a secret in her life that I think she would have carried with her for always. Everett, we don't really know his secrets. We know he has them, we know he must have them, but we don't really know what they are. Do you think people who read your book will see Maud's paintings in a different way afterwards? You know, I hope so, because 
they're always viewed as so happy, they're so cheerful, and they are. But I also think that there are clues in them. As you were saying, our brains read the shadows even though they're not depicted. In the same way that Matisse trusted the viewer to fill in the shapes that are not depicted in his paintings. It's the same in Maud's work, I think. And there are clues to darkness or to a heaviness in some of the images. For instance, in the oxen, which is such a cheerful image. It's so happy and cute. <laughs> they're and they're all dolled up. Yes, they're all dolled up. But if you look closely, summer and winter, regardless of the season, these animals are always yoked together. And there's a heavy chain dangling between them with a really sharp, brutal-looking hook that's just there. And so they're never freed of the fact that their whole purpose is to bear a burden. So I think that that little detail implies so much. And so I think Maud, because I think she built those kind of clues into her images and whether people want to look for them or not is another thing. But I do hope that in reading the book and having maybe, I hope, a more fulsome sense of Maud's life and all that she struggled with, that they would look at her paintings, maybe take a second look, a deeper look, and look for the clues and maybe even little hints or suggestions of her own suffering that may be implicit in some of the imagery. Well, Carol, thank you so much for joining me on Book Me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Costas. Carol Bruneau is the author of Brighten the Corner Where You Are, a novel inspired by the life of Maud Lewis. It's published by Nimbus. If you'd like to comment on a podcast like today's with Carol, our email address is info at bookmepodcast.ca. If you want to hear more conversations with her fellow writers in Atlantic Canada and the illustrators, editors, and designers who work with them, we have dozens of those chats all on bookmepodcast.ca. When we add a new interview, we post an alert on Instagram, at bookmepodcast. And if you're in the Lunenburg County area, you can hear one of our podcasts every evening on the nonprofit radio station CHLU, 93.7 FM, just before sign-off around 9 o'clock. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. Our producer is Robin Grant, and Laura Hines brightens up all the digital corners of our podcast. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. <laughs>